Hi there. Welcome back to The Fray. We're about to start our eighth episode in the podcast series, ostensibly all about Evariste Galois, but in our first seven episodes, we covered the history of algebra. Now, in these next upcoming episodes, starting with this one, we are going to start to cover the other facet of Galois' life, his country, France. Now, I want to thank all my loyal listeners out there. This podcast represents one year of episodes of The Fray. So if you've been listening for a while, I want to thank you for hanging in there with me. I am on social media now. I'm both on Twitter and Facebook at The Fray Podcast. That's where you can find me. Now, if you're new and you're just joining us in The Fray, I want to welcome you as you join us as we enter The Fray. I'm very excited to be telling you this next story. I've been lucky to have two of my favorites in back-to-back episodes. Having just wrapped up episode 7, all about the Renaissance's algebra feuds, that episode ended with the publication of the Ars Magna, The Great Art, a book that officially established the algebraic world of complex numbers. This will kick off a mathematical arms race that'll sweep across the West. All at once, the world of our math, the people that we know who are involved, names that we recognize, like Hilbert, Lagrange, Gauss, Fermat, Pascal, they'll start pushing the boundaries established in 1545 in the city of Milan. Things will pick up so much speed, in fact, that I have made the decision to stop talking all this math stuff and dig into the other major tentpole of this endeavor. I want to tell the story of Galois as a complete person, and as much as he loved math, he was also invested heavily in the politics of his country. France, at the time of Galois, was a fragile state, teetering, once again, on the brink of chaos. A chaos that the population was keenly aware of at the time. I mean, when Galois was five, Napoleon escaped his prison on the island of Elba, marched through France, gathered an enormous army, and culminated it all with his epoch-making defeat at Waterloo. Now, Galois himself grew up hoping that this man, Napoleon, though defeated and once again imprisoned back on the island of Elba, would once again make an epic attempt at liberation for both himself and the people of France. Alas, Napoleon died on Elba when Galois was turning 11. At that time, the country of France was being ruled, once again, by a king. It was 1821. The French Revolution started 32 years previous. So how did that work? It was a question that for me was not really answered until I dug all the way down to the bottom of it. The crazy town world of Evariste was not something that happened overnight. France was a mess for a very, very, very long time. In fact, it is telling if you are to come at this from a different angle. Instead of looking at France as a singular unit that is remarkable for its ability to stay whole, it is more accurate to consider the near miracle that anything like United France is even possible at all. 
Now, if you were looking at the country's history, it'll become apparent pretty quick that anything even resembling a united France was a very rare thing indeed. Only in extreme circumstances, stuff like World War I, the aforementioned Napoleonic Age, has France been able to act as one unit, which is pretty lucky for the rest of the world. Just in these two instances, a united France was able to display traits that would make it very formidable on the world stage. In World War I, France went toe-to-toe with what is considered by many military historians as the best military in all of history, that being World War I Germany. France exhibited one of its most noteworthy traits, that is its ability to sacrifice its population in staggering numbers, which of course means the population must be willing to do so. Luckily for France, they had acquired both of these traits over their long history. This was shown during the time of Napoleon. His great army, at its largest, counting baggage train, consisted of over a million men on the march, which probably was one of the first nationalistic armies the world had ever seen. It was an overwhelming force of farmers and peasants and artists and engineers, starving to death in their own country, so seizing on one man's genius for modern warfare, that consisting mostly on artillery, which sort of is the drone warfare of its day, and the madman Bonaparte fit that bill to a T. Once this massive force got rolling, whole countries would be swallowed up by it. After a short time of resistance, most of Europe got the picture and began to fall all over themselves to surrender. Fittingly, once the French army would make it to town, not to burn it, but instead to revel in it, as they were seen as liberators by most of these people in most of these places. Now, when they arrived, many accounts of their appearance was as looking more like the defeated army than the victors. They wore no shoes, no shirts, just pantaloons, sashes, French flags waving, and whatever weapon they could scrounge. Scythes, trowels, shovels, stakes, rocks, chains, and clubs. In the words of Tyler Durden, they were the all-singing, all-dancing crap of the world. And they were loved for it. In much the same way that Galois was enamored with a world ruled by this ideal, the ideal of the noble savage, which is a popular term at this point, having been coined by a fellow Frenchman, a guy named Rousseau. But they had a king, again. So what gives? Why did the revolution, so much in step with our own American revolution, a mere 12 years earlier, fail to take hold in France? Why did the country of liberty, equality, and fraternity place a Bourbon buffoon back on the throne? Now, as I mentioned way back in the first episode of this podcast series, the French Revolution was an amazing, crazy time full of death and misery. So how and why did it all go to waste? All the sacrifice, all the dying, all of it for nothing. That was part of the story that I personally was not well acquainted with. For me, the American and French revolutions were friends, pals, working towards the same goal, which through hard work and determination, both were able to achieve for the good of all mankind, yada, yada, yada. But what I found as I started down this road of my tasty little Frenchman was that was not the case at all. Despite the marketing material, the French Revolution and the world that Galois inherited from it was an abject failure, only made more dangerous and more chaotic for all the chanting of liberty and fraternity. The more I looked, the more it appeared to not be about freedom and brotherhood and more like a succession of power grabs by political factions, most often defined by how ruthless they were willing to be in acting out their policy, using words like equality as a stepping stone to tyrannic rule at all costs. 
Of course, it is more nuanced than that. Good things did come about over the course of the revolution. Things were done for the right reasons. The hard part is determining what acts are just and what actors were justified. Like a good foreign film, when you know shit all about the actors, who was supposed to be the star and who isn't, to the point where you have absolutely no idea who's going to die or be found guilty or left heartbroken. The socio-political world of France was probably one of the most complicated in human history, and most of us don't know shit all about it. That world that Evariste grew up in was a Gordian knot of the old, the new, the modern and the classical, the faithful versus the searchers, the metaphysical versus the material. In many ways, what we just covered over the past seven episodes or so was the easy part. Math is logical. Throughout all the wildness of the past 5,000 years or so of human history, math simply had to ride shotgun while humanity learned how best to use it. Algebra in particular is logic hiding in plain sight, both historically and in our everyday lives. As far as the past is concerned, algebra was a marginal player, playing only a bit part, that of measurement. With fits and starts, historical algebra was passed on from generation to generation, first due to sheer practicality. Basic algebra, arithmetic really, worked well enough when it came to the day-to-day stuff like distribution of the partitioning of land. As human societies became more complex, so did the arithmetic. This progression of complexity was pretty easy to follow in the steps traversed by algebra throughout history. Behind the scenes, algebra waited until our minds were ready to accept it as a material fact of the world, though much of what was being accepted really didn't exist anywhere in that material world. Abstract concepts like imaginary numbers place the truths found in math application not too far from other metaphysical answers. But for most of us, the answers received when using advanced algebra of the 21st century are as shrouded in mystery as the average person of religious faith. We trust in the system, both because it makes sense in its basic form, as most of us had to pass basic algebra to graduate high school. We are told that no matter how complex it gets, it's allegedly the same concept we use when we do shit like first, outside, inside, last, you know. That same principle, foil, extrapolated out to its, you know, most complex degree is how we land a Volkswagen on Mars. So whether it was hiding for reasons of protection or complexion, algebra was always there. Always measuring, always restoring, always making hope. As we leave algebra behind for a bit and begin to focus on the socio-political world and culture that gave rise to the sort of place that produced someone like Galois, we are leaving a place that we can rest assured our protagonist, Evariste, was most at home at. That being the house of logic and restoration that is algebra. Which for us is a good thing because the rest of his life was a bit of an issue for him. His mother was religiously devout. He was an atheist. His father, and by extension the family, were Republican. The ruling class were royalists. The church and the king would both be major factors in the short life of Galois. Neither would bring him much joy or happiness. In fact, it drives him quite mad, but it's something he just cannot quit. Even his untimely death is clouded by this political stew of resentment, revenge, and unrequited love. One of the most remarkable facets of this young man was his life's uncanny ability to mirror his country. The trials and tribulations of this young, half-mad French mathematician are nothing if not a reflection of the very fabric of the quilt that is the deep composite of the country 
that we call France. It is a place that has existed for a long time. It is also a place that is hard to define as a single area geographically, though on a big enough map, it appears distinct. You know, you can tell where it is. By the way, when I googled when France became France, the answer it gave me was 1789, at the beginning of the revolution. Which, of course, makes me laugh since we know that 40 years or so after the forming of the Republic and this revolution of 1789, there would be a king back on the throne in Versailles. In many of the ways, the story of France is the story of Europe. Now, this may sound dramatic, like I am overstating the case for this particular country, but the idea that France, or as it was called, Gaul, was in effect the de facto world of what we call Western Europe is not about dominance, but more about the tumultuous tribal world that the ancient descendants of modern-day France lived in. For the story of Europe is one of fighting for control of what is generously called a continent. Which, by the way, has always bothered me. Europe is no more a continent than Canada is. It is just a long-standing racial boundary set up between us and them. I mean, come on, look at the map. There's nothing in between Europe and the rest of Asia except for internalized racial biases. But for the sake of argument, I guess you can give the geographic area known as Europe some credit when it comes to output. A lot of shit has been going down there. Most of the historical stuff we actually know about from people alive at the time writing it down comes in large part thanks to the people of Europe. Just including the Roman Empire would make for one of the most impressive resumes of all time. But add in the Renaissance, and don't forget, as a film buff, you know, neorealism and French New Wave. But this brings me to the very crux of the issue for me. For as I was preparing to talk about France and its history, I naturally needed to determine where I should begin. Since I have a hard time starting anything in the middle, I cranked it all the way back to, well, the beginning. And by beginning, I mean the beginning of human culture. And France is as good a place as any to start at the beginning when it comes to human culture. Many of the oldest known traces of the human race come from the geographic area that will one day become France. This includes the first stone tools. They are still the oldest to be found in Europe. The first burial grounds indicating a civilization developed enough to have such a thing, as well as the first known congregations of people into tribes or groups that would produce the world's first known arts and crafts, in the form of clothing, poetry, and painting, respectively. It is from these artifacts that we begin to learn a little bit about the people of prehistoric France. This included people who lived as hunter-gatherers on the plains of northern France, people who lived in caves and underground in the southwest of France, and those that lived in and around lakes on the eastern edge of France into Switzerland. They were prehistoric people in all those places, all of them flinting away on their little stone axes, sharpening their leftover animal bones into needles, and burying their dead with some sort of ceremony. As far as history is concerned, especially on the archaeological side of things, this is the wellspring from which almost all of our knowledge comes from when we were speaking of this time, the way these ancient peoples dealt with death. It is around this time that the giant stones of Europe, really they're all over the world, but when they were discovered or sort of defined, they started off being called the megalithic age after the use of giant stones to signify a sacred burial plot. Now, these giant stones were to become called dolmen, D-O-L-M-E-N. And in some cases, they've been upwards of a thousand bodies in just one of these dolmen areas. Now, this type of engineering is no small feat as each of these stones used would weigh many tons, some of them topping off at over 350 tons. 
Now, of course, France is not the only place where one can find collections of enormous stones, but it is the place where one can find more of them than anywhere else on the planet, as there are almost 5,000 individual such places in the country at last count. The people most responsible for this prehistoric civilization were the first group of people given a name in the area that would be France. This time, the name was to come from Greek historians who called the Denzians of this area of the world Ligurians. The Ligurians were the first classified people of the French world. Now, the Greeks described these people who occupied most of central France at the time, these Ligurians, as dark-haired people who were very short in height, but possessed a high level of endurance and were endowed with a great amount of energy. Later writers, like the Roman Strabo, would describe the Ligurians as possessing muscles of extreme flexibility that made them excellent runners. Strabo would go on to say that the Ligurians were, quote, indefatigable runners who looked like their legs were set on springs. In running, the light-footed Ligurian knows no rival, unquote. For centuries, the Romans and Greeks would often speak of the swift Ligurian, light-footed as a gazelle and agile as a squirrel. More recently, in the 1800s, French writer and historian, a guy named J.H. Rosny, would describe the Ligurian world in these terms, quote, The beauty of the world was compounded of a colossal harmony of growth and murder, suffering and joy, love and hunting, unquote. There are a couple of historical connections that are worth noting. First, the Ligurians are thought to have made many of the lakes of Gaul their home base. Now, that's not too surprising as having access to water is an important part of any society. What made the Ligurians noteworthy is that it appears that they didn't just live near lakes, they actually lived on them. They would construct stilt houses in the water, connecting them through a series of bridges and planks. I kind of imagine a prehistoric version of Waterworld, you know, whole towns existing on the water. Now, this was apparently done mainly for protection from the large carnivores of the time and of all other tribes out there looking to get what they got. Now, for me, what this connects to is a famous story from Roman history, one involving an amazing amount of gold treasure. So fast forward 500 years or so, in about 106 BC, a Roman senator and general named Servilius Capio is traipsing through the edges of Gaul, is what we know now as southern France, not too far from Versailles. Capio and his army settled in a place called Tolosanum, which is actually modern-day Toulouse, the reason for stopping at this point was the rumor that the lake in that region was full of treasure and Capio wanted to see if the rumors were true. He had the lake drained and lo and behold, resting at the bottom of the lake was more gold and treasure than there was in all of Rome's coffers. Meaning the Rome had like a, I wouldn't call it a bank, but they had a reserve. And the gold at the bottom of this lake dwarfed that. It was not too much of a stretch to believe that there was literally billions of dollars in today's money sitting at the bottom of that lake. It's a crazy story, as Capio has the gold gathered up and decides to bring it back to Rome. On the way, the Roman troops and the gold convoy come under attack near the city of Marseille, and all the men are killed, and the gold vanishes. For his part, Capio puts on a good show of angst and anguish, but it turns out to be crocodile tears, for he was the mastermind of the whole plot. Once he returned home, it being such a large amount of gold and Capio being so well known for his greed, most of Rome just didn't buy his story. Though they could never prove it that he took that gold, Capio is stripped of his wealth at some point for some other reason and exiled from Rome. 
but not before, like a modern white-collar criminal, he stashes his gold in Greece, which is, by the way, where he ended up being exiled. Now, the gold of Tolosa would live on past Capio with his son, who's also named Capio. His son would retrieve the gold in Greece, and in order to keep it a secret, he would never bring it back into Italy or even close to Rome. He would travel into Gaul and other places like Thrace and north of Greece. And what he was doing is he would launder the gold, basically, through investing in mining, smelting, and metal production, ostensibly to produce arms and armor, which is pretty much what he did. I mean, he founded whole towns, had enough gold to just start a town near a mine or place where they could smelt and create armor. And as the Golden Tolosa was used to manufacture the weapons that would go on to create an empire and also wipe out a whole heck of a lot of Gauls with them. Julius Caesar undoubtedly would march into Gaul armed and armored with stuff made thanks to the gold of Tolosa. That was all made possible thanks to the early Gauls. Oh, they're not even proto-Gauls, the Ligurians, and their penchant for living on lakes. How the gold got to the bottom of these lakes is simple. It is where they would keep their treasure away from the greedy hands of others. One has to wonder how much gold is still to be found in the mountain lakes of France and the rest of Europe. A little more well-known and more modern, the Ligurians had a connection with none other than Joan of Arc, who considered herself as descended directly from the Ligurians, and it is this connection that would inevitably lead to her death. For it seemed that she is unwilling to distance herself from the folklore and religious observances of these ancient people. No matter how the priests and monks tried to dissuade her, the young savior of France would not budge, so they burned her alive. Which does expose a little irony, as human sacrifice, many times in the form of being burned to death, was a common religious rite of the tribes of early France. After having run of the place for a couple thousand years, the Ligurians had started kicking it around 2500 BC or so, the people from the south decided to make their way into the territory of the Ligurians. Now, this was because the area of the world seemed to be perfectly designed for the next epoch in human development, the agrarian epoch, when farming became the main form of sustenance, replacing hunting. The fertile land of Gaul was so good for farming and the farming lifestyle that the Roman Strabo would describe the country, describe the country as, quote, such a felicitous arrangement of natural features which seemed to be the work of an intelligent being rather than the result of chance, would be enough to prove the existence of providence, unquote. A place like that just couldn't be reserved just for one group. So now we get the next major group of people that would go into the mix of creating the place that will be called Gaul. These people work their way north from Spain and are called Iberians. You can still hear that word, Iberian, today to describe the place of land that encompasses Spain and Portugal. The Iberians spend much of their time in the mountains, venturing as far north as the Bordeaux region of modern-day France. The Greeks had a different name for the Iberians, as they saw these people not as a race, but as a political group, a kingdom of people named the Urbo. In any case, the Iberians would make their mark on history first in creating an area known as Aquitaine, a region of France that would subsist through the Middle Ages, thanks to people like Eleanor of Aquitaine, who is considered by most to be one of the most wealthiest and powerful women in the entire medieval period. The other thing we can thank the Iberians for are the Basques, the autonomous mountain people of northern Spain and southern France. The Basques of today are the remnants of the people that were called Iberian. Their language, Euscarian, which has been spoken some 2,600 years ago, is basically unchanged to this day. And lucky for you, listener, 
is that the Iberians, by way of their Basqueness, give me the opportunity to tell one of my favorite jokes. Did you hear one about the persecuted Basques that were fleeing northern Spain into France? Well, everything was going great until they all tried to escape through one checkpoint and got caught. So what does that teach us? Not to keep all your Basques in one exit. Killer. It's a killer joke. When the Iberians and the Ligurians in the mix, there is just one more piece to the puzzle to fit in. This piece will be the most well-known of the Gallic puzzle, as they are represented by the Celts, a group of people still very much well-known today. One of the books I'm using for this episode, A History of Gaul, written by Franz Funk Brentano, in and around 1920, states that the Celts, who gave themselves that moniker, came from the north, places called Jutland and Friesland, located on the coast of the Baltic Sea. These places would one day be called the Netherlands and Denmark. That conflicts with some ideas out there that the Celts came from Britain, or in some places it is believed that the Celts originated in Spain. Now, wherever they came from, they were the impetus for everything that would come up in this episode. Their arrival on the scene was a momentous event for Gaul. These are the dudes we most commonly associate with ancient French people. Tall, pale-skinned, fair-haired, and well-muscled. Franz Funkenstein relates a story that when the Celts arrived in Greece in the mid-250s BC, and yes, these are a type of people that arrive places, they don't just appear. As the Franz Funksalot states, they arrive, and when they do, people tend to take notice. Quote, when the Greek artists, who at this time had flourishing schools in Asia Minor, witnessed the arrival of the Celts, great big men with steel-blue eyes and quantities of fair hair which looked as though they were made of sunbeams. The Greek artists, filled with admiration for these warriors with their strong muscles, their virile proportions firmly planted on their strong legs, quickly abandoned their old models, the decadent Greek and Asiatics, and made bas-reliefs of Celtic figures instead. Unquote. That's pretty much as close to porn as history gets. Man, Funk Brentano had a real clear concept of the Celtic male form. I mean, not to be overlooked, it's also fantastic that he's insinuating that after the Celts were seen, no other physical form measured up, and henceforth, all Greek statues were in fact based on these proto-Vikings. Now, this little story points out another interesting area of the Celts. They were conquerors whose conquests would one day reach as far east as the country of Galatia, a place the Celts are credited was starting. Now, Galatia is really far from tulips and windmills. It's in a place called Asia Minor by the ancients. Today, we call it Central Turkey. But before they get that far, they had to work their way through the Ligurians and the Iberians. There is no real details on the ratio of slaughter versus adoption, but there is a strong belief in the big brains on the subject that the Celts were so physically dominant that it didn't take long before a tribe would be more inclined to adopt the world of the Celts instead of dying under their blades. It is generally assumed that the Celts subjugated their new neighbors over the course of the entire 5th century BC. The Celts were an unstoppable force, they just weren't in much of a hurry. At this point in history, our friend Franz Funk estimates the demographic breakdown of the land that will be Gaul as 50% Ligurian and Iberian, 20% Celt, 16% German, including the Gothic element, 5% Latin, 4% Normans, and 5% Greek, Semite, Syrian, African, etc. 
And it is here in that melting pot of a place that we pick up our story that I wanted to tell in this episode. It is a story about the first time a people that would one day come to be called Gauls and eventually Frenchmen would encounter the Western world. Historically speaking, that is. Up until now, most of what is known about the people that will be Gauls is known through archaeology, a venerable science to be sure, but definitely not definitive when it comes to context and narrative. And here's one of the pickles. The story I'm about to tell was not recorded or told until hundreds of years after the events actually happened. At the actual time of these events, there's no such word as Gaul. No one was described as Gallic, and the people who inhabited the place that would one day be called Gaul were a mishmash of tribes, as you heard. A melting pot, currently getting stirred very vigorously at the moment by a bunch of big bad Celts. Now, that's just the world of 400 BC. And in order to understand this next set of circumstances, we have to start in the city of Rome, pretty much where every story from this time frame starts. This is really early in the history of the greatest empire the world has ever known. At this point, Rome is just another city in Italy, in constant battle with its neighbors for resources and power. They do not know or have never come in contact with any peoples that someday they will end up calling Gauls. We are so early in the Roman world that the city doesn't even have a standing army yet. Their military is a part-time gig, a far cry from the extreme militancy at the height of Roman dominion. Though people are writing shit down, we just don't have any examples from that time to rely on. But I made the decision to tell this story first, as it did happen chronologically, time-wise, and it does really break down the first time that the West, in the form of Rome, will come face-to-face with the people who will be called Gauls over a century and a half later. Now, another reason for me telling the story in this order is that I think the story itself makes more sense this way. That's due to the fact that the characters involved, the Romans and what turns out to be just one tribe of people, probably Celts, that would one day be called Gauls, these main players in this drama are going to go against type. Now, Romans are typically portrayed as the top dog, but will play second fiddle to these proto-Gauls. Now, understanding that this was a time of Celtic conquest, which is rarely portrayed to us in our culture, which is always Rome first, a conquest that would push tribes of Celts into the lands of a young Roman world. And that brings me to the second pickle. To put it simply, there's no way to learn, even to talk about the world that will be Gaul and its people, without talking about Rome and Romans. This is due to the fact that the vast majority of all documentation on the Gallic culture was done by Romans. I could go as far as to say that without the Romans, the Gauls maybe never would have even existed in the first place. Now, I had been digging into the question for some time. I was trying to come up with a corollary for it. It didn't matter to me if it was a historical or fictional, whether it was a movie plot. Heck, I'd take commercial. But dig as I might, I couldn't come up with another example of what Rome was to the Gauls. And specifically, what I mean is not in the sense of committing genocidal war on a people or for getting credit for consolidating, modernizing the barbarians into cultured Latins. Nope, none of those. For me, it's more elemental than that. For when I ask of an example of what Rome meant to the Gauls, I realized I'm talking about the Doppler effect. The very existence of Gaul, with its massive population of animal-worshipping, human-sacrificing warrior farmers, 
lived in complete darkness as far as history is concerned. That is, until we benefited from the Doppler shift it created when it encountered the incandescent brightness of a star that the world rotated around for almost a thousand years. That star, of course, is Rome. Now that term, Doppler shift, may be familiar to you as it is the way that astronomers identify those monstrously huge and befuddling masses of nothingness called black holes. It seems that there are depths to plumb in the analogy of Rome to light and Gaul to darkness as it pertains to both history and the Doppler effect. Gaul and the Gallic peoples are a major black hole in the universe of history, and the only way we really know anything about them is because we can make sense of their effect on the surrounding Roman universe. In many ways, Rome is the star that a lot of cultures are defined by. A lot of it has to do with how much of history, especially classical history, is dominated by the Roman viewpoint, a role which is at least in part substantiated by the existence of Roman culture, if not the dominance of it, for literally a thousand years. It is not unfair to be judged by Roman rules since they played such a huge role in constructing the world we live in as it is. Heck, even European mathematicians were using Roman numerals up until the 16th century, which is over a thousand years after the fall of the Roman Empire. So yeah, duh, Rome was dominant. And throughout much of its history, it would be dealing with the early world of the French, who the Romans would eventually call the Gauls. We know a great deal about this particular ebb and flow, mainly from one guy, one of the most famous and infamous human beings of all time, none other than Gaius Julius Caesar. But we'll get to him shortly. Because of the Gallic world of Julius Caesar is a much different story than the story of the first time the people of the place that will be Gaul would engage with Rome. This story, which we'll be talking about in this episode, occurred about 350 years before Julius Caesar was asserting his will on the Gallic people, killing over one million of them in the process of their total and complete subjugation. It is from this error that the phrase describing Roman foreign policy was born. They create a desert and call it peace. But that's Julius Caesar. As I was saying, before him, and a long, long, long time before him, I mean, think about it, 350 years ago, for us right now, would be 1671. Would you be willing to think that 1671 is a lot like 2021? Just to help you out, 1671 was the year that we uh, stumbled across what we call West Virginia. Charlestown was founded in South Carolina. And Connecticut enacted the first of what it's known as Blue Laws, which I'm originally from New Hampshire, so that term blue law is familiar to me from being from New England. They're laws, sort of moral laws, right? Now, as an aside, I had to stop working on this to alert my kids that I'd found some new house rules once I read the Connecticut Blue Laws. I mean, they literally broker no quarter. Murder someone, bear false witness, poison someone, happen to be a witch, the sentence for all these crimes death. But the best ones are the ones that deal with teenagers. This is why I got my kids. I believe this would be the 14th law that was enacted. If any child or children above 16 years old and of sufficient understanding shall curse or smite their natural father or mother, he or they shall be put to death. There you go. 
No quarter asked for, none given in Connecticut. Now, they actually saved an actual law just for teenage boys. I happen to have two of them. And law number 15 says, if any man have a stubborn or rebellious son of sufficient understanding in years of the age of 16, which will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, and that when they have chastened him will not hearken unto them, then may his father or mother, being his natural parents, lay hold on him and bring him to the magistrates assembled in court and testify unto them that their son is stubborn and rebellious and will not obey their voice in chastisement, but lives in sundry notorious crimes. Such a son shall be put to death. Now, like I said, being the father of four teens and two of them boys, I can attest to the reasoning for enacting such laws. And if that is not a great example of how big a gap in culture there can be over the course of 350 years or so, I don't know what is. Anyway, back to ancient Rome, or at the very near its beginning of the Republic of Rome. The world of 400 BC Italy was a much different world than it would be some three and a half centuries later in the time of Julius Caesar. It is interesting to note that the, the two stories we're going to tell that really have Rome involved sort of bookend the beginnings of the Roman Republic and the ends of the Roman Republic. For when the city first started, it was a monarchy ruled by kings. And after the Republic fell, it was ruled by emperors, right? Caesars, they were called. And both of these respective times, the beginning of the Republic and the end of the Republic, there was a Gallic presence that helped define that era. In the beginning, Rome was just another town in Italy which at this point in history was considered to be the western frontier of civilization. This is in the mid-700s now, or back a couple hundred years. And the whole idea of a town is pretty new. In reality, the Romans were no more, no less a tribe of people just trying to make ends meet. Now, like all new things, Rome was nothing like we commonly understand it to be. It was not large or powerful, or in no way was it anything like an empire. It had a nice location, centrally situated on the Italian peninsula with easy access north, south, and to both coasts, situated on the Tiber River. Now, it wasn't a perfect location because when it came to farmable land, Rome needed more. When it started, it was a small town and there were plenty of growing areas to feed its people. As it grew, however, it would become an ongoing problem for the city for the rest of its history. They weren't growing enough food. For the first 250 years or so, the town of Rome grew slightly to the point that it could be called a city. Now, this first iteration of the city, as I said, was ruled by a king. It was during this time that the rest of Italy became aware of this new upstart. Now, these Roman neighbors, people like the Etruscans, Samnites, Campanians, and the Sabines, just to name a few, were like Rome herself. They were starting to make advances toward their fellow Italians. For whatever reason, Rome seemed to be populated by particularly ambitious and stubborn people. They quickly became the city you love to hate. People didn't like trading with them, didn't enjoy their company, and so consistent with similar social dynamics, the other Italian city-states began to freeze them out. There is a famous story that even its existence alone speaks to the veracity of the rest of the Italians' feelings towards the Romans, regardless of there being any truth to the story. It was during this formative time that towns all over Italy were scratching out a living. The math of the time was cruel, 
and many tribes would see that this shift to settling down in and around a town or a city as signaling the death knell for their particular culture. In quick order, the tribes well-equipped for this style of life flourished, and all others died off or were absorbed into the more successful municipalities. At this time, Rome was not one of the more successful municipalities, and after attempting to kick off a thousand years of empire, it appeared like they were not going to make it even one generation, as Romans were confronted with a stark reality. Even if they were to secure enough food to stave off starvation this year, there simply not enough Roman women to keep birthing Roman men. It seemed that the greatest empire the world has ever known was suffering for what is known by its more technical term nowadays as a sausage fest. Needless to say, something needed to be done, and being the morally corrupt Romans they were, followed their founder, Romulus, who hatched a plan that was considered so heinous that it is still referenced today. It even has a catchy title that you may have heard of, though probably thinking it was a work of art or a painting or a play. In fact, if you're a fan of the musical Seven Brides for Seven Brothers, you should be familiar with this story. This little plan for Roman's version of Mars Needs Women is known as the Rape of the Sabine Women. Got a nice ring to it. Definitely says Roman to me. Now, of course, let's choose not to take a bath to learn some manners and attempt to make Rome and Roman life attractive to members of the opposite sex in order to ward off cultural extinction. Nah, let's just steal us some chicks. Women were kidnapped. Wars were fought. Lots of people died. Rome somehow continued to grow, despite being loathed by everyone else in the vicinity. For most of the Romans, they were growing tiresome of dealing with their reputation. It was getting much more difficult to sustain any sort of momentum when you cannot trade or work with any of your neighbors. So they felt their problem was their style of government, which, if you recall, was a monarchy. At this point in their history, Rome already had what they called a senate, which literally comes from the Latin senex, meaning old man. This body of men was made up of what was called the patriarchy. We would call that an oligarchy, a small, powerful group that controls the strings of government. It was this body that had decided that they had enough of the rule of kings. In 509 BC, the people of Rome rid themselves of the last of their kings. This act the abolishment of the royalty in any form would become one of Rome's most steadfast beliefs. For centuries to come, the Romans would rely on this act, moving from king's rule to senator rule as the ruler by which all other forms of government are measured. But even more than a civics lesson, this decision to abolish the right of kings would manifest itself time and time again in the real Roman world. In any time, a man, say, in his political career was too successful, any general whose victories were too great, they were to be seen as making a grab for the throne. Time and time again, physical violence would be justified simply because one Roman thought that another Roman was trying to be king. You don't have to look any further than Julius Caesar to see those thoughts in action. In fact, quite dramatically, one of the big reasons for the fame of one of Caesar's assassins, Brutus of Et Tu Brute fame, was because he was a descendant of the guy who assassinated the last king of Rome over 500 years earlier. His fellow conspirators needed Brutus and his lineage of king-killing to help justify the slaying of Caesar. Look, a member of the Bruti clan did the deed. If anyone knows how to kill a king, it's a Brutus. Now, the slasher-flick demise of Julius Caesar 
was one of the most famous king abortions in Roman history, but it was not the only one by a long shot. Hardly an event would transpire, a victory in the field or in the court or in the forum, that would not bring forth accusations of tyrannical king-like behavior. This feeling was so strong for the Romans that they would, 500 years later, when they collectively acquiesced to be ruled by an emperor in the form of Julius Caesar's adoptive son, Octavius, don't think of them as a tight-knit family. Gaius Julius adopted Octavius when he was 18 and mere months before he himself was assassinated for thinking himself a king. Now, Octavius, who would change his name after he ascended to the throne as dictator for life to the more recognizable Augustus Caesar, the name we all know and love, the thing is the people of Rome would keep the Senate and all the other obsolete government structures of the Republic in place so they can continue to stand firm in their conviction that no Rome or Roman will ever be ruled by a king. Right. Now, after that momentous event in 509 BC, Rome came to be ruled by a group of families and individuals that dubbed themselves the Senate and called themselves a Republic. But it wasn't all olive oil and goat cheese for the Romans after ridding themselves of kings. Everyone in Italy still hated their ass. And for much of the next 120 years, the Romans would face starvation, war, pestilence, and just pretty much a shit life. Then opportunity presented itself. After decades of struggling, the Roman world found itself in the position of being an attractive place to expand by one of its more powerful neighbors, the Etruscans. For it seemed that the Italian peninsula was beginning to get crowded and everyone was having trouble feeding their population and in general, making those ancient ends meet. So the Etruscans and the Romans went to war to determine who would be calling shots in central Italy. This was a fortuitous matchup for the Romans as one of the main strongholds of the Etruscan world happened to be just 12 miles north of Rome in a city called Veii. And after scrapping with the Etruscans south of them and subduing them, the Romans turned their attention to the well-fortified city of Veii with the hopes of crushing it and in turn, crushing their rivals, the Etruscans, and asserting their dominance to the region once and for all. Now, what the Romans didn't know at the time was all this action from the Etruscans was not just some wild hair of expansion for expansion's sake. This newfound aggression in the Etruscans was due to the fact that there was, for the first time in recorded history, a group of well-muscled, virally proportioned sunbeams pouring into their land. That land, ranging from the Tiber River up to the Po River in the north of Italy, was held by the Etruscans and was considered to be the most fertile in all of Italy. Fellow Italians knew this, but so did the big bad boogeymen of the north, probably a tribe of Celts. In around 410 to 400 BC, this tribe slowly started to make their way from the lands of modern-day Switzerland over the Alps and descended into the Po River Valley of Italy, the home of the Etruscans, and decided that the living was so good, they set up shop along the river and against the Adriatic coast. So this is how we first hear about the people who would one day become the Gauls, and eventually French. And to make clear, this is not the Gauls as a united force of all the tribes of Western Europe descending on Italy. This is, in fact, just one tribe of them, probably Celtic and not Gallic at all, a tribe called the Senones. It's easy to see this group as Celtic, as I said, 
migrating through Western Europe looking for a nice place to conquer, as they have done for most of the continent to this point. They're nearing their century of conquest mark, so they've been doing this for a long time. Now, the Etruscans wanted absolutely nothing to do with these barbarians, so they decided it was easier to take on those little assholes from Rome instead. And that is how they found themselves locked behind the sturdy walls of the city of Vi, surrounded by a whole heck of a lot of nasty little Romans. In this siege of what was thought to be an impregnable fortress of a city, Rome was going to display some of its key attributes that it will begin to rely on in its march to world dominance. First would be something that they had been showing ever since their inception, that is the trait of their perseverance. Many cultures would have succumbed to the grind of history faced with some of the obstacles that Rome faced for the first 300 years or so of its existence, but they stubbornly hung on, sometimes by their fingernails, through it all. At the Siege of Vi, which, as I mentioned, was considered untakeable in a siege, it had only one narrow exit or entrance, which was easily defended. The three remaining sides were sheer cliff walls that provided an impenetrable boundary to any form of assault. So that is how things stood between the Etruscans and the Romans for a while. With Rome getting the worst of it, they would have to do something as of yet had not happened in their three centuries of existence previous. They would have to keep their army in the field for the entire year, through the winter and the planting season. Now, this is a telling insight into the world of early Rome. No matter what the ordeal militarily up until this point, no Roman army had ever been deployed for an entire year. Until this siege, the typical Roman soldier was more a farmer than a fighter, and missing the planting season would have dire consequences for themselves and their families. All the while, the Etruscans were safe and sound in their fortress of a city. But like always, the Romans persevered. And just when things were at their most dire, when the soldiers were eating boiled tree roots baked in mud, another one of Rome's signature moves was about to be put on display. This would be in the form of the great man. Much like perseverance, the Roman world was not new to the idea of a great man. After all, it was founded by one, Romulus, ruled by them in the form of kings like Tarquinius Piscus, saved by them in form of the king killer Lucius Superbus Brutus, and will be saved by one of them time and time again throughout history. This is no more apparent than what goes down next in the siege of Vi. Frustration with the lack of progress and the destitution of their farms, the rank-and-file Roman soldier was about to walk away from the whole ordeal. But timing is everything, and just in the Nicodemus of time, one of Rome's greatest of great men comes to the fore to save the city, a man named Marcus Furius Camillus would not only prove to be the savior of the siege of Vi, but would go on to be asked to do his thing no less than four more times in his lifetime, each time rescuing Rome from the jaws of defeat and extinction. The siege of the Etruscans would be the first time he would do so, and he would rely on another of Rome's transcendent attributes, that being one of ingenuity. For while Camillus granted the fortress of Vi its seeming impenetrability above ground, he wondered if that could be said of the city's fortifications below ground. With the proper scouting and engineering, Camillus was able to ascertain the workings of the city's sewer system. Armed with this knowledge, he led a small advance party through the labyrinth of passages below the city, emerging in the center of town unnoticed. Through careful planning, the remainder of the Romans on the outside began their charge towards the front gate, 
of VI. The inhabitants of the city watched this charge in amusement as they knew there was no way that force could breach their defenses. That is, of course, until Marcus Furious and his fellow sewer rats appeared seemingly out of nowhere to open the front door for them. The Romans then proceeded to kill every man in the city, capture all the women and children, and sell them into slavery. Not for the first time or the last time, a great man was able to save Rome and increase her glory and prestige. Things are starting to look up for the Romans now. Now, one of the key parts of their victory, besides opening up much-needed farmland and removing a main rival in the region, was that they came into possession of one of the largest salt works in Italy. Now, this may sound like a nothing burger, but in the world before we could make salt effectively, which really wasn't that long ago, like 150 years or so, access to salt was crucial to any society. I mean, without salt, we die. And for most of humanity, we had to rely on naturally occurring salt deposits. He who controlled the salt controlled the world, in a sense. And it was that way for a time for Rome. They started to make some real money once they started taking control of the salt trade. They could feed their people, and they had a great man to rely on. Oh, wait, what is that you say? No shit. Who would have thought that would happen? It seems that one Marcus Furius Camillus, not too long after his victory, was brought up on charges that he had royal designs and desired to be a dictator for life. So his property was confiscated and he was banished from Italy. What can I say? Roman's gonna Roman. See you, great man. So all this was going down in and around the turn of the century from 400 to 390-ish BC. In those eventful 10 years, Rome went from scrambling to put food on the table to ordering off menus without prices in them. After 350 years of struggle, it finally looked like Rome was about to become the Rome we all know and loathe and love. But all this changed when the Fire Nation attacked in the form of the real reason that the Etruscans were willing to risk extinction at the hands of the Romans. This was because they wanted nothing at all to do with the hairy monster men of the north that had descended from the Alps and set up shop in the Etruscans' backyard, the Senones. And they had been sitting back and watching all this fighting between the puny Italians for a decade, and after a time decided, hey, that looks like a good idea. So they decided to start taking down their own Italian cities, since if the Romans could do it, how hard could it be? And this is where the two worlds meet for the first time, Rome and the people that will be Gauls. And hearkening back to some of what I said earlier, it is a relationship defined almost exclusively by the Romans. The very word Gaul is a Latin word. The peoples that the Romans bequeath that title of Gallic to do not recognize themselves as having an overarching culture that they belong to. Besides, this tribe of what is most likely Celts identified themselves as a tribe called the Senones, And by the time they encountered the Romans, there would be at least 30,000 people strong, with some estimates putting their numbers upwards of 80 to 100,000. Up until this point in their history, Rome has seen nothing like these Celts. Their appearance, their manners, their martial prowess, all was a huge unknown for the fledgling Roman Republic. It is evident that the Roman world was completely ignorant of their neighbors to the north. And when you read these accounts of what is about to happen to Rome and its people at the hands of the Senones, you can still feel the awe, fear, and anxiety in the words. And remember, all of what was written by the Romans was written a long time after it happened. 
This first quote is from 2nd century BC, around 150 BC, by a guy named Polybius. He happened to be from a place called Megalopolis, which sounds right out of DC comics. So it's still two centuries after it occurred. He says, quote, The Romans were terrified by the fine order of the Celtic host and the dreadful din, for they were innumerable hornblowers and trumpeters, and the whole army were shouting their war cries. Very terrifying, too, were their appearance and gestures of the naked warriors in front, all in the prime of life and finely built men, and all in leading companies richly adorned with gold torques and armlets, unquote. Another quote from around that time, again, centuries after it all went down, was from a guy named Theodorus Siculus. Quote, They are tall in stature, with rippling muscles under clear white skin. They look like wood demons. Unquote. And in 1390-ish BC, these wood demons decided to turn their attention on Rome. As I mentioned a little bit ago, a tribe of Celts called the Sinones had settled on fertile plains of northern Italy. This was not Roman land at this point in history. It belonged mostly to Etruria, home of the Etruscans, who by 400 BC were engaged in a bloody war with the belligerent Romans. As has proved to be the case time and time again, though, one group's misfortune is another's opportunity. While the Etruscans were losing the siege at Veii, the Sinones were growing in number in the north. Eventually, once the great Etruscan city fell, the Sinones had started to pay attention to how they too can take one of those wonderful cities for themselves. It appears that the Sinones had themselves a charismatic and cunning leader to help them do this, a guy named Brennus, who was keen on gaining some serious power in this new world of small, stubborn people. Brennus is one of those characters from history that nothing is known about at all before or after the events that are about to be unfold. Now, regardless of the paucity of information, there is enough recorded on him and his actions that we can put some meat on the bone. First, according to the website historica.fandom.com, obviously a, a storehouse of accuracy, Brennus was born with the name Bran. He was chief to some 30 to 70,000 or so Sinones and was married. He is also credited with speaking one of the greatest quotes in history, but we'll get to that part. We don't learn much with these scanty details. However, in his actions throughout this ordeal, we do learn that whatever brand the man was, Brennus or breakfast cereal, he was a shrewd military tactician who was one of the only commanders to complete the historical trifecta of demolishing a Roman army, invading and sacking the city of Rome, and living to tell the tale. Now, though, of course, we have no idea what he talked about after all this went down because Brennus vanishes from history, which, understanding the gargantuan ego of the Romans, says more about how much space Brennus was renting in their heads than it does on recording the actual history. The Romans were a proud people, probably placing pride higher in their social order than any major human civilization, and what Brennus and his fellow Sinones were about to do to Rome was not something they really wanted to dwell on. For all we know, Brennus is the guy who goes on to start his own country or something, but we'll never know, thanks to nothing being written down by the Celts and the Romans being sore losers. The brand that would be Brennus accomplished the impossible, and he would make it look easy. But it is safe to say, at the start of all this, once Rome had vanquished the Etruscans and erased the city of Veii from the earth, the Sinones began to act 
on the void created by a severely weakened Etruria. It is at this point, some say 390, others say 387 BC, that Brennus led his massive mob of Sinones toward the Etruscan city of Clusium. Now, cities in that era, like the massive city of Vi, that just fell to the Romans, were designed first and foremost for defense. A strong city could hold out for a long time, though few cities in Italy had to confront the reality of 50,000 Celtic warriors blowing their horns buck-ass nude, chanting for blood. In a move that demonstrated the desperation of the people of Clusium, they almost immediately applied to help from the very city that just put to death thousands of their citizens. The people of Clusium begged their hated enemy, Rome, for help against these barbarians who were literally at their gates. Whether out of charity, yeah right, or opportunity, the Romans listened and sent some envoys to meet with the Sinones. Now the Senate of Rome sent the sons of the wonderfully named Fabius Ambustus to meet with the invading Celts. By all accounts, it didn't go well. Now, I'm not sure if you've seen any of the Marvel movies. There are a couple of them, the Ant-Man and its sequel, The Ant-Man and the Wasp, that have a comedy bit in them with that great actor Michael Pena tells a story and his narration continues over sort of a montage of scenes. And all the actors reenacting his story will adopt his very particular patois, his delivery. Now, I find it hilarious, and it is how I picture this next scene going down. One of the sons of Fabius breathlessly retelling this story. The voice of the narrator for me in my head, though, is the professional football player and part-time wrestler, Rob Gronkowski. So here we go. Quote. I don't know why I'm quoting it, because it's just me doing it, but quote. So, bro, dude, I mean, let me catch my breath. Okay, okay, okay. Listen, bro, listen. No, 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 you gotta listen. You get all fucked up, you know what I'm saying? It started as soon as we got close, man, a couple of miles from the camp. Dude, bro, first of all, I gotta say, bro, these guys are big, dude, big all over. You know, like them wood demons, but they're total assholes. You know what I'm saying? I mean, I couldn't go three steps without them stepping to me. And, you know, I ain't got no problem with the scrap, but we got orders, you know, right? So, so, hold on. Oh, I almost caught my breath. All right, here's what happened. As completely annoying as they were freaking were the whole way into camp, we were able to keep our cool. A bunch of them had gotten around us and we really couldn't see where we were going, so we just kept walking straight, right? Anyway, we finally get somewhere and the big fuckers just part. And I can finally see the sun again. And I say again, these guys are big. So there we are meeting with one of them. So-called smart barbarian. You know what I'm saying, bro? Freaking smart barbarian, I know. Anyway, so I, I do the greeting. You know, I got that shit down cold, right? So I'm placing the chair down. I'm fluffing my toga, getting everything just right. And they start to blow those fucking horns, bro. And what are you going to do? Barbarians, right? So I just sit and wait for them to cut the crap. And it takes a long time, bro. A long time. And they finally pass out or something. And then it's quiet enough for me to ask, yo, what the hell do you think you're doing, bro? And they were like, so I asked again, yo, bro, you hear me the first time? And they said, yeah. And I said, yeah, what? And they said, yeah, we heard you. And then I said, then what did you hear? Boa. I mean, what the fuck, bro? Another fucking horn. Right next to me, too. Total dick move. I had to jiggle my finger in my ear, you know, when you got to stick it way in there and shake it all about. 
If you do it enough, you get that little squeak that you know that you haven't lost your hearing. Well, I, lucky for me, I heard that squeak and I wasn't going to be half deaf. Anyway, but I, 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 I missed everything the big naked wood demon said. What? I asked again. What did you say? He just mad dogged me the whole time, but didn't say anything. Right. Rude. Right, dude? Now, with my ears still ringing, I said to the guy, you know, it's not so cool to be a jive turkey so close to Thanksgiving. Hope you just give a damn good reason for taking our good buddies, the Etruscans, land. Now, the guy, hornblower guy, was about to blow his fucking horn again. And I had been eyeballing him the entire time I was blabbing to the chief dude. I watched the big fucker raise the big honker to his lips, and I moved on him, ramming the bell of his ugly noisemaker with the staff of my spear. Yeah, I guess I... Don't know my own strength, bro, because I busted up many of the hornblower's chiclets. No doubt, bro, no doubt. Chop that wood demon down to size for sure. Now, this seemed to get the crowd a little bit excited. The chieftain finally decided to say something to me. He asked me that if Rome wants to know what rights he and his people have to Etruscan land, then the answer is that our right is in our weapons and that everything belongs to the brave. That's when the big guy with the hole where his grill used to be gets up with a mean look on his face and I'm not playing none of it, right, dude? So I turns to Chatty Cathy in charge and say, whatever, chieftain, all the while I spin and jam my weapon without looking right into this synonic satchmo, right through him, dude, like a boar, straight through him. The place went fucking crazy at that point. I shit you not, it was off the chain. Of course, we had to fight our way out. And we've been running all the way back to Rome just to give you the 411, bro. You thought you would love to be the first to know how much ass we just kicked. Unquote. Hope that was as good for you as it was for me. Now, parts of that were dramatized. But a lot of what I said, or Gronk said, happened. The Celts, allegedly, did say that their weapons gave them the right to the land. And one of the sons of Fabius did indeed impale a synonic dude. All in all it was an inauspicious way to start a relationship. But Brennus wasn't exactly itching for a fight with the Romans, at least not yet. So he sent his own envoys to Rome to speak before the Senate, seeking justice for the actions of the Fabian boys. But Rome being Rome, and the Senate being populated by the same type of old fleshbags of idiocy that currently occupy most of our own government, even though they were offered peace from Brennus in exchange for the Fabii, the Senate instead announced a blue-ribbon fact-finding commission to get to the bottom of what happened and promised to let Brennus and his fellow barbarians know as soon as they had something to report. Now, carry on. There's real business that needs to be done. Carry on, carry on, they said. So the Sononic envoys left to deliver the message to Bran Van Brennus. What the commission revealed when it was all said and done, was that many, many Romans really liked the sons of Fabius, they were not willing to give them to this invading army. So much so that while the committee was trying its best to earn its blue ribbon, two of the sons of Fabius got elected to council, the highest office in the Roman Republic. It was a major statement that was meant as an affirmation of Roman rights in Italy and a big old F.U. to the Sinones, which is exactly how they saw it. Well, shit. I guess it's time for war. It is interesting to note that this version, the Fabian brothers, the councilship, the outrage, is considered by some historians to be fictitious, mere propaganda to justify assaulting Rome by a secret partnership between the Celts and the Sicilians to the south. The theory is that the southern faction wanted Rome distracted 
So they got in league with Brennus and his barbarians and paid them to bother the Romans. In any event, war was on like Donkey Kong. Brennus gathered his 30 to 50,000 troops and started to march to Rome. From where they were in Italy, around the city of Clusium, they were about 100 miles from the walls of Rome, which is really just a couple days' march. So Rome had to scramble. They called up an army. Now recall that there were no standing Roman armies at this point in their history. This is 387 BC or so. At this time, an army was raised for a season, fought through the late spring, summer, and early fall, and then went back to their farms, orchards, and wineries. On extremely short notice, the Roman could muster about 15,000 soldiers and cavalry. No one was really worried, though, because the Romans were typically outnumbered in their battles. They made up for this disadvantage, they thought, with superior training and discipline. Bring on the barbarians. The army of Brennus and the Romans met at the confluence of the Tiber and Allia rivers north of Rome. For the purposes of this podcast, to delve into the mysteries of the world of Galois, France, this is the starting point of all that is to come next. In terms of influence on what would eventually become the nation of France, there really is nothing compared to the impact of Rome. I'm not much a military historian, so I'll leave the details of the battle to those more inclined. It is known as the Battle of Allia and is one of the worst days in history of the Roman military. This is mainly due to the fact that the vast majority of the Roman casualties, according to Roman historian Livy, writing around the birth of Jesus, remember, so almost four centuries later, were due to lacking one of the most, if not the most crucial aspect of the Roman military, that being their intractable discipline of the legionnaire. Livy would write, quote, None of the Romans were slain while actually fighting. They were cut down from behind whilst hindering one another's flight in a confused, struggling mass. Unquote. A professor from the University of Vermont, a Mr. Brian Walsh, who lists being a specialist in Livy, translates the Roman historian thusly, quote, The Gauls, for their part, were almost dumb with astonishment at so sudden and extraordinary victory. Remember, they're really Celts. The Romans would not call them Gauls at this point. At first, they dared not move from the spot, as though puzzled by what had happened. Then they began to fear a surprise. At last, they began to despoil the dead, and as their custom is, to pile up the arms in heaps. Unquote. Okay. It was a rout. A day that no Roman would ever forget. A sort of 9-11 or JFK moment. A moment that was to be one of those where were you when fill in the blank happened. It would go down ever after in Roman writing as the Black Day, which in Latin is Dies Ater, D-I-E-S-A-T-E-R, which looks and sounds a lot like disaster. Do you think that is where the word comes from? Is that where we get disaster from a battle fought in 387 BC with a bunch of guys in Chewbacca bikinis blowing their horns? No shit. Another little tidbit that has trickled down through history about this event goes a long way into describing just how easy a victory it had actually been for Brennus. After cutting down most of the fleeing Romans and taking the rest as hostages, the mass of Celts headed directly for the city. Rome was defenseless and a little over 10 miles away. Half a day's march were thousands of naked wood demons, white of flesh, blower of horns, frothers of mouth, with a lust for Roman blood. But that is how bad of an ass-kicking it was. Brennus didn't buy it. 
he thought the Romans were pulling a fast one, that they had feigned the loss to lure the Sinones into a trap. And say what you will about who Bran Van was as a person, which we pretty much did say all that there is to say about the guy, but as a leader, he had enough pull to stop this mob of thousands of naked dudes with axes and swords from storming the walls of Rome for an entire day, just because he had a hunch. That's a boss move, and that says a lot about what his tribe thought of him. For wait, they did, just outside the walls. And once it became apparent that there was no trick, no subterfuge, merely a colossal amount of incompetence and ego on the side of the Romans, Brennus ordered the sacking of Rome. Now, this will be the first time and the last time a foreign force would occupy the city of Rome for almost 900 years. What Brennus and his Celts found when they entered the city of Rome was a ghost town. Most of the inhabitants had fled. The extra day they got from the Celts as they pondered this suspected trickeration of the Romans, buying many people the chance to flee. Even with the one-day delay, though, there was just not enough time for all the people to get out of the city. Not the behemoth it would become, the city of Rome was still at least 100,000 people strong at this time. Livy writes of a meeting where it is decided that all men left could fight would retire to a place called the Citadel, a heavily fortified temple on top of Capitol Hill that housed all of the important religious and financial stuff of the city. It is here that they will make their final stand. It was to be their helms deep, their Alamo. All the men too old or too infirm to fight would do their part by being a distraction. They would remain in the city, in their homes, awaiting the invaders, providing them fodder for their destruction. They, who would be forever known as the old noblemen, would be the fuel to the Celts' fire, allowing the men to properly secure themselves up in the citadel. Now, as to the women and children, well, here's what Livy has to say. Quote, The misery of the scene was heightened by the distress of the women. Their tears, their distracted running about as they followed first their husbands and then their sons. Their imploring appeals to them not to leave them to their fate made a picture in which no element of human misery was wanting. A great many of them actually followed their sons to the capital, none forbidding or inviting them, for though to diminish the number of non-combatants would have helped the besieged, it was too inhumane a step to take. Unquote. I guess eventually they kicked out all the weeping wives and moms and got safely ensconced in the citadel. The old noblemen retired to their mansions, and the rest of Rome tried everything they could to get the hell out of Dodge. With the sunrise came the Sinones. They rushed in through the Colline Gate, which was left open. No one was there to greet them. The streets were empty. Livy does a great job here in describing what the Celts encountered when they charged into Rome. Quote, They dispersed in a quest of plunder through the streets in which they did not meet a soul. Some poured into the houses near, others made for more distant ones, expecting to find them untouched and full of spoils. Appalled by the very desolation of the place and dreading lest some stratagem should surprise the stragglers, they returned to the forum and formed up in close order. Unquote. At first, the empty streets of Rome spooked the Celts, and after all they had nary a battle with the cowardly legions of Rome running at the first sight of them, and now the city itself was offering no defense? Who were these Romans that commanded such respect? And why were they always running? Livy notes that the Celts were only entering the homes that had been barricaded. They left the wide-open homes alone at first. 
These happen to be the homes where the old noblemen live and were awaiting their guests to introduce themselves. Now, if you're waiting to hear a story of old dudes kicking ass against naked barbarians, I'm going to have to disappoint you. Instead, the old noblemen will utilize a particularly Roman tactic, relying on one's personal honor to engage the enemy. In a way, it's a version of civil disobedience, a nonviolent protest based on self-control, but not under the auspices of equality or justice, but instead honor and holding one to the highest of standards. It is a trait that is uniquely Roman and noteworthy. Livy records the astonishment the first moment that the Sinones decided they were going to go into one of the open homes and see what was going on in there. In each of those, they would encounter an old Roman dude, dressed up in his whitest toga, waiting patiently, proudly, displaying his true Roman virtue. Again, Livy says the Celts, quote, they gazed with feelings of real veneration upon the men who were seated in the porticos of their mansions, not only because of the superhuman magnificence of their apparel and their whole bearing and demeanor, but because of their majestic expression of their countenances, wearing the very aspect of gods. So they stood gazing at them if they were statues, till, as it is asserted, one of the patricians, a Marcus Paprius, soused the passion of a Celt who had begun to stroke his beard, which in those days were worn universally long, by smacking him on the head with his ivory staff. Paprius was the first to be killed, the others butchered in their chairs. Unquote. As for everyone else left in the city, it didn't go very well either. The men ensconced in the citadel would hear the cries of the women and children for days as the marauding army ransacked the city. For a time, the Sinones had the run of the city, and it did burn. But eventually, with nothing left to ransack, and remember, this is Rome of 387 BC, centuries away from anything close to the Rome you have in your brain. For reference, in the Russell Crowe movie Gladiator, the Roman emperor Marcus Aurelius dies, in the beginning of the movie, in or around the year 180 AD. The opulence of Rome portrayed in that movie, however lavishly portrayed, though I would say it was probably a bit conservative, was almost six centuries after Brennus had burned it to the ground. But as in all fires, if you run out of fuel, you run out of flame. Repeated attempts to engage the remaining Romans locked away up in their citadel proved futile, so Brennus decided on sieging the city and starving them out. Meanwhile, the exiled Camillus, remember him? The hero of VA, who had led the assault of that city's sewer system to snatch the victory from the jaws of defeat? Well, lucky for Rome, he was living in exile far from Rome. Once word reached him that Rome had fallen to a barbarian horde, he began to recruit an army from the towns surrounding him. Once he got a respectable force, he led an attack on a group of another, unconnected group of Celts who were foraging for food. He declared himself ready to ride to the rescue, but awaited the green light from the guys locked up in the citadel. Throughout this action that is happening on the periphery, on the streets of Rome, not much is happening at all. It is prone to happen during siege warfare in which you are literally attempting to outweigh your enemy. There are many, many hours and days of doing absolutely nothing. Weird shit starts to happen. Weird shit like the soccer games that the French and Germans would have during World War I are a good example. Now, this siege of the Citadel had settled into just such a torpor and it had spawned a very cinematic moment. And I say this meaning that this next part of the story is just straight up Hollywood. And I'm going to let Livy take it from here. Quote, 
During these days, there was little going on in Rome. The investment was maintained for the most part with great slackness, both sides keeping quiet, the Celts being mainly intent on preventing any of the enemy from slipping through their lines. Suddenly, a Roman warrior drew upon himself the admiration of foes and friends alike. The Fabian house had an annual sacrifice on the coronel, and Caizo Fabius de Russo, wearing his toga in the Gabine kinkshire and bearing his hands the sacred vessels, came down from the citadel, passed through the middle of the hostile pickets, unmoved by either challenge or threat, and reached the coronel. There he duly performed all the solemn rites and returned with some composed expression and gait. Feeling sure of the divine blessing, since not even fear of death made him neglect the worship of the gods. Finally, he re-entered the citadel and rejoined his comrades. Either the Celts were stupefied at his extraordinary boldness, or else they were restrained by religious feelings. For as a nation, there are no means inattentive to the claims of religion. Unquote. I mean, is the Fabian clan the only Romans doing anything in this story? A couple quick observations. First, the Gabine cincture? It is something that we moderns do not concern ourselves with much, but the way one wore one's clothes mattered. It had names and terms for the different ways you could rock your toga. I mean, a small detail to consider, if one would ever get the chance to travel back in time to Rome, I mean, one wouldn't want to sport a Gabine cincture when it is not called for. For shame. And tell me that wouldn't make a great scene in a movie. When I was first reading this, I didn't know if the guy was going to make it or not. Go Kaizo! With no end in the stalemate in sight, both sides were starting to feel the pinch of the siege. For the Romans, it was famine, and for the Celts, it was disease. The fact that they were under siege was a good explanation for the why the Romans were starving. That is, why you besiege a place in the first place, to starve people into submission. For the Sinones, the disease was probably typhus with a little dysentery. A rough combination and a lot of reason for this was climate. The simple fact is that the big burly brutes from the north were not accustomed in the least to the heat of central Italy. Their camps were not built correctly to fend off the spread of diseases, and it was beginning to take its toll. It came down to a battle of wills, and it was anyone's guess who would break first. Now, meanwhile, still in exile, Camillus awaited the signal that it was okay for him to save Rome. Now, at first glance, this may appear to be caution based on strategy, but human nature is much more base than that. When it comes to heroism, the hidden truth of much of the stories of history that laud the selfless actions of men is the fact that their actions are far from selfless. That is definitely the case when it came to Camillus, as he was waiting not for the signal to attack, but instead for the okay from the Senate that they have rescinded his banishment and granted him powers as a temporary dictator once again to save Rome. Until then, he wasn't going to lift another finger to help. But some of his men were more inclined to force the issue, and they drew straws on who would go on the suicide mission to attempt to get a message through to the citadel. Someone had to tell the Senate, or what was left of them, to grant Camillus his demands in order to save the city. A soldier named Pontius Comanus ended up with the task of sneaking into the citadel, past 50,000 Celts. He started out creatively, as Libby recounts that he made his way to the city, not by walking, but by floating down the Tiber on a cork float. Evading detection, he reached the steep walls of the Capitol Hill, on top of which rested the citadel. 
The walls were so steep that the Celts had left them unguarded since they felt no one could climb such a sheer surface. Pontius Commodus was like, hold my wine, and scurried all the way up to the face of the cliff and made his way into the citadel to deliver Camillus's terms, which were immediately accepted by the starving Romans. Pontius Commodus snuck back down the cliff and started back on foot to Camillus and his waiting army. Now, at this point, it appears that the Celtic occupation of Rome was about to come to an end. But one of those twists that seem to populate many stories that the Romans are involved in, the very cliff access point that had gone unguarded, that had finally provided Pontius with access to the citadel, was found out by the Celt. And finally, Brennus had his opportunity to put a stake into the very heart of Rome and make the city just another footnote in history. Not wasting any time, Brennus ordered some unarmed men to begin to scale the cliff. His plan was to build a chain of sorts of men up the face and then pass the weapons up through the men who would then follow the weapons and gathering up on top would arm themselves and put an end to all their misery. And the plan was working. Enough Celts were on a path, it turns out. They had discovered an easier path than Pontius the cork floater had. And they have passed up enough weapons at this point that they were starting to amass at the top of the hill, very near the citadel. They had done all this without detection. The Romans had posted sentries all along the perimeter of the hill. They had also access to guard dogs. Though when Livy decides to add a little color to the description of how astonishingly quiet the Celts were, he also decides to throw a little cover to the Roman sentries who really screwed the pooch, so to speak. Livy says of the Celts, quote, so silent had their movement been that they did not even wake the dogs, an animal peculiarly sensitive to nocturnal sounds, unquote. It was going swimmingly for the Sinones, who were seconds away from conquering the city of Rome, when something I'm not quite sure they had factored into their plan happened. During their flight up the Capitol Hill, the Romans had taken the time during their retreat to the walls of the citadel to save a flock of sacred geese. These geese were special to the goddess Juno, and probably out of guilt for letting their own women and children be raped and murdered, the men of the citadel saved them and chose to leave them unmolested during a sustained siege. Now, this is no small feat, as after months of static endurance had reduced their diets of the Romans into roots and bits of papyrus and vellum from unwanted scrolls. Though the Romans were starving to death, they left the geese alone. And that decision would pay off big time for the Romans. The sentries had failed. Man's best friend had also let everyone down, but not Juno's favorite ganders. Livy continues to paint the picture, quote, but the Celts did not escape the notice of the geese, who were sacred to Juno and had been left untouched in spite of extremely scanty food supply. This proved the safety of the garrison, for their clamor and the noise of their wings aroused Marcus Manilus, unquote. So, the quick-thinking Manilus grabs his sword and runs out to the sound of the commotion. At first, all on his own, he attacks all of the Celts, just as they were reaching the summit of the hill. He barreled into the first one, hurling him off the cliff, and then began to hack away at the hands of the enemy soldiers, who were now hanging on for dear life. Quickly joined by others, Manilus and the Romans were able to make quick work of the Sinones and remain vigilant throughout the night, and at first light decided to blame the whole thing on the guy who was in charge of the dogs. They had failed, so the master of the dog was thrown from the cliffs to his death. Now, after all that, the stalemate was still in place. Something had to give, 
And after the number of dead Celts attributed to disease reached such a number that they would have a giant bonfire to just burn bodies, the Celts and the Romans decide to call it a truce. And as trite as it may sound, it will end like it does most of the time. It'll come down to money. For the Romans will offer Brennus and his conquering Sinones the sum of 1,000 pounds of gold to leave Rome and never come back. As a testament to how much money that was, Brennus immediately said yes. Wham, bam, thank you, Bran. Now this does bring into relief that alternative theory I mentioned earlier, that the story of the Fabian bros was just that, a story. The real reason for the attack of Rome was not honor at all, but old-fashioned greed. The Celts were being paid to distract Rome. They had instead annihilated it. That wasn't what they were paid for. They were being paid by the enemies of Rome to the south, and the whole reason that Brennus accepted the thousand-pound offer from the Romans is that it was never his intent to stay in Rome. He and his fellow Celts hated it there. It was too hot and full of disease. In either case, the Sinones were eager to make the deal, and now comes the part where we finally get to that great quote from Brennus. Once more, we let the master Livy set the scene. Quote, A meeting of the Senate was now held, and the counselor tribunes were empowered to make terms. A conference took place between Quintus Sulplicus, the counselor tribune, and Brennus, the Celtic chieftain. And an agreement was arrived on by which 1,000 pounds of gold was fixed as the ransom of a people destined ere long to rule the world. The humiliation was great enough as it was aggravated by the despicable meanness of the Celts, who produced unjust weights, and when the tribune protested, the insolent Brennus threw his sword on the scale with an exclamation intolerable to Roman ears, said, Woe to the vanquished. Unquote. Woe to the vanquished indeed. And with that, Brennus and his Sinon tribe mates pick up and leave. Livy writes about Camilla showing up at this point and wiping out the Celts and taking back the gold, but there's really no one that believes that actually happened. Brennus and the Sinones just get to ride off into the sunset, having just ransomed the city of Rome back to itself. It is also interesting to note that the line of Livy's, quote, people destined ere long to rule the world, unquote. In this story, those people are supposed to be the Celts, the people of destiny, but of course, that is not how the future will play out. But for the time being, the Celts, these proto-Gauls, in the form of Brennus and his crafty and fortunate Sinones, were able to pull a fast one on the future center of the world. It was quite an auspicious introduction to the world stage, a people that would one day be called Gauls, and by the people who had just been conquered by them. It would not be the last time that these two people will meet, the Romans and the people who would be called Gauls. But it is the last time that the results of the clash would be favorable to anyone other than Rome. For as we all know, Rome was destined to long rule the world and their ascension would need its foil, its defining enemy. For the Romans, that role was played to perfection by the peoples to their north, and it's through their twisted relationship that we get our first glimpse into the world that would become France. From here on out, the story of the home country of Everest de Galois would be a story of tribes and cultures, whole worlds combining into one idea that is the French soul. It is an idea that has never been made a cohesive reality. And that is not a knock on anyone. I mean, just take a look at how much we here in the U.S. fall short 
of our professed national ideals. For France, it just runs so much deeper than even the idea of freedom and equality. I mean, take a look at Brennus. He had the greatest city the world will ever know on the ropes. He gave it all up for some gold. His best plans were foiled by cork floats, old noblemen, and geese, watched over by a female guardian angel. But just when it was all in the palm of his hand, he walked away. This type of story will be echoed over and over again throughout the history of France, a story full of bravery and misery that no matter the crisis, someone, sometime, will do something to make a mess of it. A story of a country that at once has the whole world at its feet, at the same time it has its shoes on the wrong foot.